Uh, we're talking with Walter Craig, the Canada Research Chair of Mathematical Analysis and its Applications at McMaster University. And I'm Mike Breen, Public Awareness Officer for the American Mathematical Society. And in part one, uh, Walter talked about models and uh, characteristics of tsunamis. And Walter will start off part two here by saying what our current state of knowledge is about tsunamis. I think we're quite naive about tsunamis. It's a question why we haven't a deeper understanding. So I'd like to analyze them two ways. In the middle of the ocean, actually, I think a tsunami dynamics is not difficult. I think it's simple. They move like a wave and probably not very high, so like a linear wave. And we sort of should be able to do that problem pretty well. And in fact, I think we do do that quite well. Just all the aspects, behavior at the shore, that's quite complicated. So I have in front of me a, a diagram. This is, a, this is the best I had before all those cell phones taking videos on March 11 in, in Japan of this year. So this is the best I had, and it's from a book by Efim Polonofsky, who is an expert on tsunamis. And he is reproducing a, a diagram from the, I have to read it now, the Nihonkai Chubu earthquake. It's on the north Akita coast of Japan, and it's uh, in the early 1980s. I don't know the exact date. It's not labeled here, actually. And it has a diagram of coast, and it has associated with parts on the coast different waveforms as they impacted. And this data was formed because the tsunami impacted during the day, and people were walking on the beach, and they interviewed people and made sketches of what people saw with approximate heights. You see, it's rather rare that a tsunami hits, so you don't can't put out instruments and then expect to measure anything in the next 100 to 200 years. That wasn't possible. But by this method, they have a, a number of data points. Now, the coast has convex parts, concave parts, estuaries, and different things happen in different regions. There's focusing in estuaries. There's hydraulic jumps with dispersive tails, with breaking parts in concave regions. It's, I, I find it uh, fascinating. And also, how do you calculate all this? So I think this is an, quite an unknown part. So if, if, if I were to make a mathematical project out of this, I would say make some canonical coastlines, concave, convex, estuarial, flat, straight, impact tsunami waves of certain amplitude on these. This is going to be, this really has to be numerical. It's a, quite a big task. That impact has to be in different directions because you don't know where the source is going to be. And then start trying to catalog the reactions and start trying to catalog what the solutions look like. Seems kind of um, a big project. Yeah, yes, it would be a big project. So, Walter, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, one thing is, if there's an earthquake, how do you know there's a tsunami? It's a, it's a sort of a tsunami warning system thing. An earthquake moves, and, and then waves will move through the crust, and those are very fast, maybe 10 times as fast as a wave through the, on the surface of the water. And so within minutes or so, geostations around the world detect an earthquake, and take two or three of them, triangulate, find out where the earthquake is, and from the strength of the signals and your distance, you have a sense of its magnitude. You tell it's in the sea, but you cannot tell if it's moved water. That's somehow the mode of the earthquake. Has the crust lifted? Has it descended? Has it just moved sideways? Has it thrust in at an angle? And is that angle toward a coastline or away from a coastline? Was it a point source like the Tohoku earthquake, or was it a line source like the Sumatra earthquake? Quite different things. And you'll know about the mode from the crust motions, but you only know about the mode after a fair amount of integration. And I think at present technology, well after a warning is going to ever be uh, useful. 
So that's why you get tsunami warnings and then no warnings, because, and then it's released because, oh, that one didn't move water, or this one did. So the, there's the project. Understand better how to detect the mode of earthquake from remote signals. The impression would be, oh, it, it, the magnitude would determine everything, but that's not the case. No, it's not the case. The one thing, the, the really dangerous thing about the Sumatra tsunami was it was a line source. The earthquake lasted about 20 minutes, and it was like a zipper moving south to north on this line between the um, Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea, and just kept on moving with large motion and sent a, a, you know, a basically a plane wave focused, unfortunately, at Sri Lanka. So that was that was tough. Uh, here's another detail that there's this kind of a, a folklore that the water moves out before a tsunami impinges. And, well, that's only about half true, or half the time true. Well, Japan, there was one impact. The earthquake was relatively close to the coast. And there was basically one wave which inundated the coastal region and then went out. Well, that was enough, of course, but it was only one. On the other hand, the Sumatra tsunami, when it crossed the Bay of Bengal, that took about two hours. I think it was a several thousand kilometers. And then there were waves. I think there were maybe five or six impacts, depending a little bit on where you were, where the water would rise and and come into, you know, come into town and then wash out a very dangerous backwash, and then come in again 20 minutes later and go away. In fact, the, this Japanese tsunami, when measured, you could, it was measurable impact on the California and the north coast of the United States and of Canada, and it was many waves, smaller, but every 15 minutes there was, a, or every 10 minutes there was a rise and fall of, of a detectable amount. So this is dispersion in, in its motion. And at the moment, that's not taken account of in the operational codes that predict tsunami given earthquake. So it would be interesting to be able to say, how many attacks are you going to expect if you're at, in this place at this distance? That's, that's a mathematical problem, which is at this, at this point, I guess, not known or not, not, not solved yet. Again, it's a huge problem. It sounds like that you would need almost a team of people because you have physics, you have geologists, mathematicians. Are there such teams in existence working together to try to analyze these type of problems? Well, I'd say there is a community. There are several tsunami centers, uh, none in the math department, really, but there are several tsunami centers. Uh, there's a Canadian one in Sydney, British Columbia. The NOAA has one. Australia has one. Japan certainly has uh, more than one, although I couldn't actually make a list right now for you. And, well, we do talk. Actually, we're talking more and more. So uh, I get to advertise. We are having a, a workshop in June, so that's next month, at the Fields Institute, where the purpose of the, of the workshop is to put together the mathematical community with interest in this with the physical oceanography community who study tsunamis and extreme ocean waves and our object is to communicate, understand what each other's problems are and how we can help each other. So I, actually, I think it's urgent. It's sort of like California's sitting there and nothing's happened yet, but just look at Japan. So I think it's an outstanding liability that we should be thinking about. Well, Walter, thank you very much. That's Walter Craig, who's the Canada Research Chair of Mathematical Analysis and its Applications at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Again, uh, Walter, that was uh, very interesting, and, and you, obviously you know a lot about it, and thanks for talking with us. Anytime. Thanks very much for calling.